The world is a mess. The world is as angry as it gets. Trump has irked some European allies by withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. And running foreign policy through Twitter. 37 countries, 22% have confidence in Trump. He jawbones our allies. The President of the United States was palling around and supporting a whole bunch of Arab autocrats. I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. She's a noted historian with a unique view of the Trump administration. And he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist with decades of experience reporting in Washington. And this is the Politics and History podcast that asks, what is happening? And has it happened before? Hi, Heather. Hey, Ron. How are you? Good, good, good. We're going global this week. We're talking about Trump and the world. What does President Trump and his policies mean for our standing on the world stage? Every American cares about that. Since World War II, America has been the global leader during our lifetimes. I mean, not just militarily and economically, but also with our ideals and certainly with a kind of notion of America, of what we represent. You know, no matter where we were politically in America, I think there was a a shared and rare bipartisan feeling that we wanted our president to represent us well and represent those ideals, the ones you learn in civics class in eighth grade, to the wide world. And that's changed. So where do we go from here? Heather, you've studied history. We've had a long run of America as primary, America as the nation leading the world. How did we arrive here? Well, you know, we have had a long run with America as the preeminent power in the world, but that really only began in 1941. And there was a famous article, a, a piece written in Time by Henry Luce, who in 41 that said, you know, this is the American century. This is the century where America is going to carry its principles forward to the world. And we have a duty, a moral duty to do that. But that sort of internationalism beginning in 1941 and really playing out through the years since then, and, and we can talk about how that happened, really was new to America. America had always been an isolationist country and had recognized that foreign affairs was really about jockeying between different powers generally for economic advantage for for business people were doing it. But this idea that somehow America had a moral role to play internationally is a very new one. And it's fascinating to me, be, uh, new, I'm sorry, to a historian, it's new. It really began in 1941. Maybe it's not new to everybody else. But to me, it's very interesting because it seemed to me with President Obama, we were going back to the idea of recognizing that America was only one country of many and was going to need to jockey among different nations for some sort of economic, political, social, cultural advantage. And it's interesting to see what is going to happen now with President Trump so deliberately shutting the door to the world since 1941 and essentially go saying, let's go back to where we were in the 1920s or the 19 aughts or the 1890s or even the 1870s. 
It's a world in which America is very isolated. And while that might have worked in those eras, now in a new era of international trade that is so dominant in our economies, it's hard to imagine it's going to fly now. So now we arrive in America first. Where we, we flat out say we don't care about ethics. We don't care about the way things are going. It's a very different moment. Or America, an old moment, in fact. <laughs> old and new. Let's get to our guest this week. Susan Glasser, Chief International Affairs Columnist at Politico, host of the podcast The Global Politico, a longtime observer, writer about America and the world. Susan, welcome. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with both of you. Susan, so Trump goes to France last week. He's been to Saudi Arabia, Israel, the Vatican. As far as you can see, it's six months in. Is there a Trump doctrine at this point taking shape? And if so, what are some of the features of that as we might define them? Well, first of all, uh, I would say beware of foreign policy pundits bearing doctrines with a capital D. (laughs) Donald Trump, one of the reasons why it's so hard to have a Donald Trump doctrine when it comes to foreign policy is because that implies a level of strategic thinking, a purposefulness to it, and a worldview that is coherent enough to produce such a thing. And, you know, one thing that we do know about Donald Trump is he's not Henry Kissinger and he's not Metternich. And he doesn't have a foreign policy doctrine with a capital D in those conventional senses, right? right? However, he does have instincts. He does have policy views in on particular subjects. They don't necessarily add up to a coherent or consistent foreign policy worldview. But in fact, one of the things that I've said throughout the six-month-old Trump presidency is you should pay attention to what he has to say because those who predicted he really didn't believe anything and he would just be bossed around by the adults in the room that he appointed to his national security team were wrong. And I think that has been borne out by and large uh, when it comes to his preference for dealing with authoritarian leaders, for example, and strong men around the world, whether it's Vladimir Putin or Turkey's leader, President Erdogan, or the military leader of Egypt, Mohammed al-Sisi. You've seen Trump express a marked preference for personal diplomacy with authoritarian regimes. That is an aspect of the Trump Susan, let's just run out of dialogue here. What do you think McMaster and these other longstanding foreign policy players, what are they saying to Trump when he is doing this? I mean, are they just saying we we respectfully disagree, Mr. President? Are they backing away? Are they, I mean, they have to be stunned by this behavior. It just goes against everything those men have always said. Well, I think that's right. And I, I the real story, once it ultimately comes out of the Trump administration, may well be they perceive themselves to be stopping him from doing even other things. So this week, there was a very instructive round of that, I think, here in Washington. One of Trump's campaign promises was he was going to blow up the Iran nuclear deal that Barack Obama made. Never, ever, ever in my life have I seen any transaction so incompetently negotiated as our deal with Iran. And he said he would get rid of it. Now, he didn't do that. Why? Because his top advisors and his top foreign policy allies, like Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu, for example, no big fan of the Iran deal when it was being negotiated. But now even he has come to accept that it's not the best course of action to simply blow it up in the absence of having an alternate plan. And so Trump faced a deadline that basically we have to recertify every few months, in effect, that this deal's provisions are being abided by. The deadline was coming up. His 
team of adults, McMaster, and the like, thought they had gotten Trump's buy-in. But at the last minute, he got angry all over again because, in fact, he wants to do what he said on the campaign trail he was going to do when it comes to foreign policy. He wants to blow up the Iran deal. In this particular case, they'd actually scheduled an announcement for midday. They scheduled a briefing conference call with reporters. They had to cancel all that and spend hours in meetings frantically trying to convince the president of something he'd already agreed to, but obviously doesn't really support. So what do I take away from that? Number one, there are instances where McMaster and Mattis can can win one, but it's likely to be temporary. And Donald Trump's preferences are those that he has publicly stated, and he will keep doing what he can, whether it is trying to reset relations with Russia and Vladimir Putin or trying to sabotage or blow up the Iran deal. Susan, do you think it's fair to say that he is approaching foreign affairs in a different way than we have really since World War II? This idea of sort of an American isolationism in which we're really not engaging in any sort of ethical or moral ways with other, especially European nations. Is that fair? That he's not really backing NATO? He's not. Re- he really is looking at an isolationist worldview that we haven't really seen since before World War II? I'm not fully sure where I come down yet on the America First slogan and whether it is a slogan or a fully formed worldview on the part of Trump, at least as he applies it to national security policy. And he certainly is handling foreign policy in a radically different way. He's basically eliminated institutions and he is personally calling up world leaders. He's also extremely ignorant, of course, about the affairs and the policies that are that are shaping our national interests as we interact with those countries. And he's, he's trying to reduce it to a series of, of business deals. I think he is a radical departure from any president of the post-Cold War era. Uh, there's no question about that. And that includes George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Uh, but basically, I would argue that Trump has ended that immediate post-Cold War era. I guess the question is, can Trump evolve in office now that he sees the way the world actually works? Because I don't think he has a real sense of that. Well, look, there are two sort of countervailing arguments on this one. Number one, which is that presidents, especially two-term presidents, tend to grow into the office. People like Bill Clinton uh, would tell you that they were much better at foreign policy in their second term than uh, in the first term and especially the first year. You know, there is a record of American presidents learning. On the other hand, uh, the idea that 70-year-old Donald Trump, who has done everything his own way for a very long time and has resisted all inputs, foreign and domestic, to suggest that he's going to adjust his style, never mind the substance of what he's doing, there's just very little evidence to suggest that Donald Trump is going to be learning and evolving in office. Let's, let's talk about presidents who have evolved and, and what the yield of those evolutions have been. Well, the obvious person to look at is Kennedy, of course, who stumbles desperately with the Bay of Pigs as soon as he's in office and recognizes a number of things, not least that he needs to listen to advisors and he needs to take a much longer view of foreign policy and what he is able to do and what one should do in terms of foreign policy. He had a bit of a problem, though, in that he was coming after Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower was an extraordinarily adept manager of foreign policy for all the fact that he gets into trouble with the way he overturns the election in Iran and and people always point to that. Eisenhower knew the foreign world in a way that nobody else did. Kennedy inherits 
the world from Eisenhower and makes the great mistake of trying to prove that Democrats can be um, can. Well, I think that's actually what he's up to. You know, Democrats have been seen by then as being weak on foreign affairs. So Kennedy pushes way too hard with the Bay of Pigs. So I think it's I think that it's true that it's a it's a learning curve that everybody has to attack when they go into office. Yeah, and a learning curve. What some people might say was salvation later with the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, thank goodness Kennedy admitted error. I think it was the key to Bay of Pigs. You know, there's a famous story where his father visited him. And Teddy Kennedy told this story to me once in his office where he says, you know, uh, my father often gave us advice, not all of it are good. And uh, he visited uh, me and uh, Jack and Bobby after Bay of Pigs. And and he said, "Uh, uh, Jack, you got to just say uh, you screwed up. And Jack said, well, geez, Dad, I can't, I can't do that. Uh, you know, I'm the president. I'm a young pre- president as well. I can't. Uh, that won't work. And then my father said, uh, no, no, you got, that's the thing you got to do. You know, that whole buck stops here. Well, it's more than that. People need to un- understand that, that you know what a mistake looks like and you've learned from it. And uh, Teddy says, that's, uh, that was uh, the best uh, advice my father ever gave uh, to Jack. And he did that. And people said he can grow in office. He's young, he's green, but he knows what error looks like and he knows how to learn from it. And that goes back to what you were saying before. Will this president be able to learn and grow in office? And I think Susan's dead right that when you're starting the process at 71 and you have shown no significant growth in your entire life. It's oh, a come bit... on. Wait a second. Let's get some of the wives on the phone. <laughs> Uh, Susan Heather, let's listen to German Chancellor Angela Merkel through a translator in May after Trump attended his first G7. The times in which we could completely depend on others are on the way out. I've experienced that in the last few days. We Europeans truly have to take our fate into our own hands. People seem to think that we have always been this international world power. But this whole moment where America is is the preeminent power is post-World War II. It was a deliberate attempt to guarantee that we would not have international nuclear war. It came from a very specific place. And it was even at the time contested. So you had coming out of World War II, you had a significant proportion of the Republican Party who did not believe that America should be involved, especially in Europe. This is actually, interestingly enough, where we get the legend that FDR deliberately set up the bombing on Pearl Harbor because they argued that that was a deliberate attempt to get America involved. You're kidding. So there was... A U.S. behind 9-11 thing with FDR and I Pearl Harbor? I thought everybody Harbor? knew that. I didn't yes, know there that. Was. So there, well, actually, you should spend more time on, on uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, like, I, yeah. Right. I really, I need to, I need to block out some hours. But, <laughs> but, but, but tell me about, about FDR behind Pearl Harbor. Well, who who well, was saying that? Not credible people. Well, yes, credible people, in fact. It was the sort of Hoover wing of the Republican Party who were led by the 1940s by Robert Taft, Senator Robert Taft, uh, the son of President William Howard Taft. And they believed staunchly in isolationism. They believed in the kind of world that came out of the 19th century, the idea that the only people who should be operating in an international stage were businessmen. And this plays out um, really dramatically in American history because it looks in the 1950s 
1950s as if Robert Taft is going to become president in 1952, or at least get the Republican nomination, and he has every reason to believe he's going to win because Truman's quite unpopular then. And Eisenhower has been in Europe trying to get NATO going. And Eisenhower comes back and goes, you know, we simply must have the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to push back against the spread of the USSR. And he goes to Taft and he says, listen, you need to get your act together and get behind NATO. Don't be an isolationist isolationist anymore or NATO is going to collapse and we must have NATO. And if you will back NATO, I will not challenge you for the presidential nomination. But if you will not back NATO, my hat's in the ring. And Taft says, I'm going to win without you. America should be an isolationist country. And that's how Eisenhower ends up running for president in 1952. Okay, look, let's go to NATO here because NATO is a defense pact. You know, if you attack one of these countries, you're attacking all the countries. And that that, that really brought a lot of coherence and a lot of, of mutual protections to the world. So, Susan, look, the show is called Freak Out and carry on. So let's do a little freak out here. So one of the freak outs I hear from my foreign policy friends is that at a moment like this with the U.S. pulling back, what will happen is nature abhors a vacuum and countries will move to fill it. Uh, You know, are we potentially facing and have we seen the probability of heated conflict rise by virtue of the vacuum created by the U.S.? Specifically, I think the NATO story, and it's it's great to hear sort of the founding politics of it and then to take it forward all these decades later. Nobody expected it to live on uh, 70 years later, but nonetheless, here it is. The Soviet Union uh, is gone, but Russia has emerged not only as a successor state to the Soviet Union, but eager to revise and change its place in in the international system. And so it's not just – but but I have to say something about Donald Trump because this is really important. It's not just that Donald Trump is taking an America first foreign policy or he doesn't want the United States to go off adventuring uh, in in foreign wars – that was something that Barack Obama felt and, and that he has in common with Donald Trump. The difference is about NATO and about Russia. So what is it that is so striking about Donald Trump's comments on NATO? It is Vladimir Putin's animating goal in life. It is his number one enemy, NATO. NATO is the thing that he believes threatens him and anything he can do to diminish it Uh, which makes an American president publicly questioning the foundation document of this entire alliance to be basically Vladimir Putin's dream. You were a reporter from Russia. You reported on Putin, and you're a great reporter on on all things Russia. Help us understand. Talk to me about the Putin-Trump relationship, how you see it. Well, look, I think that is the signal question so far of Donald Trump's presidency when it comes to foreign policy is to unravel that mystery. Is it as simple as the fact that he seems to have always admired Vladimir Putin along with strong men more generally? He specifically said many very admiring and and praiseworthy things of Putin's presidency. But it's it's clearly something more than that, because his agenda is not just, well, gee, why can't we all get along, uh, kind of simplistic. He now has started to actually act on Putin's foreign policy agenda in a more specific way. And that's the part that really leaves people demanding answers, wanting the investigation to get to the bottom of this, because otherwise, it seems almost inexplicable. Why would you question NATO Uh, Why would you end American CIA assistance to Syrian rebels who were opposing the Russia-backed Assad regime? Uh, and, And why would you do so and trade that away for nothing? 
I mean, were you chilled to the bone when you got that report a little while ago, a few days ago, that there was another hour Trump spent with Putin off ledger that no one knew about? Look, what I would say is, A, I'm glad that someone with the investigative capacity uh, and skills of Bob Mueller's investigating this because I want to know just like you want to know. Um, Donald Trump had every reason not to do it. And uh, the fact that he so desperately wanted to speak privately to Vladimir Putin, despite the potential political costs, which he was well aware of, obviously, make this an extraordinary moment. And anyone who thinks otherwise, you know, is just not paying attention. Yeah, uh, Susan. God, that's framing it. Beautifully. All right, Susan Glasser, Chief International Affairs Columnist of Politico, host of the podcast, The Global Politico. You should listen in. It's fabulous. Thank you for joining us, Susan. Hopefully we'll talk sometime soon. Be well. Fantastic. Thank you, both of you, and uh, have a great day. Take care. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Heather, let's listen to President Trump talking to Bill O'Reilly before O'Reilly's meltdown in February on Fox News. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why, you think our country's so innocent? You think our country's so innocent? I don't know of any government leaders that are killers in America. Well, take a look at what we've done, too. We've made a lot of mistakes. I've been against the war in Iraq from the beginning. Yeah, mistakes are different then. A lot of mistakes, okay, but a lot of people were killed. So a lot of killers around, believe me. Wow. I mean, this is just so alarming to me. It's it's not that he is noting that in the exercise of power, we often fall short of storied, lofty principles. We all know that. It's the relish he seems to enjoy in pointing up America as a nation of hypocrites, hypocrisy. And he seems to reject the idea that a higher moral ground that we have claimed, even if we have not arrived there, even if it's a goal, a dream, an aspiration, is part of what has made America, America. I mean, when did we, Heather, arrive at a place where we felt a kind of confidence, because it is a confidence after all, that you hear in Kennedy's inaugural speech, we will bear any burden, we will pay any price to uphold principle, the ideals of humanity. When did we, when did we become a nation that believed that was who we are, a nation of, of such lofty ideals? I think America has always been a nation of lofty ideals from the very first reference among the Puritans of the city on a hill through the American Revolution and people in the Civil War and into the late 19th century when people believed that America stood for things. But what has made the last 70 years so different is that America believed that it stood for things and that it should spread those things internationally. And the reason we got there was because of World War II. And the story I have always found very moving And that is that Eisenhower, who was, of course, the supreme commander of the Allied forces, was one of the first 
Allied commanders to see a prison camp. And he went to Ordruff Prison Camp and was simply horrified by what he saw there. And he wrote home to Mamie and he said, you know, I really didn't believe that people could do this to each other. And it profoundly changed him. And he came back to America determined to guarantee that such a world could never happen again. And what he came to believe was that The real thing to worry about was a population that felt that it was dispossessed, either culturally or economic or religiously dispossessed, because that would create a population that was ripe to be exploited by a demagogue. Right, just like Germany between the wars. Well, he's looking at Germany. He's looking at, at Mussolini in Italy. And this terrifies him, and he believes that America has a duty to guarantee that those dispossessed populations do not rise. Mm -hmm. So what he turns to after he's elected in 1952 is not only NATO, not only the UN, he turns to the idea that America has a duty to spread education, food, opportunity, soft power, if you will, to fund what his opponents called stomach diplomacy to try and guarantee that peoples across the world had a rising standard of living to guarantee that they would not become dispossessed, give rise to a dictator who might have access to a nuclear weapon. We have a clip of Eisenhower from a NATO conference in 1957 in Paris. Let's listen to this. We are here to find ways and means to apply our undoubted strength to the building of an ample and safer home for mankind here on this earth. I believe our NATO governments stand ready to concert our efforts with each other. It is in that spirit that we have come here so that out of the reconciling and joining of our wills, we shall renew our strength and press on to that peace in freedom, which is our rightful heritage. He sounds a little like George Costanza, doesn't he? Like with high ideals, though. But she, but, you, you know, it's not you, it's me, I think, is what he's saying. But you listen – Eisenhower was never a great speaker compared to the kind of writer he was. But you listen to that and you think, is that moment really over? Do we no longer need to work with other nations to guarantee a better world, to guarantee that we won't have populations that devolve into dictatorships that can use a nuclear but weapon? But isn't the idea this is enlightened self-interest? Aren't we safer – when this ethic, this ideal is at the forefront of what we do with all this power that Eisenhower talks about, doesn't that make us safer as well? It's so interesting to hear Eisenhower. I mean, my God, how much further can this man be from Donald Trump? Uh, Heather, another fabulous colloquy today. And of course, it's great having Susan Glasser too. Good to chat, Ron. Great joy. I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Our intern is Chris Yulian. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.